Well, it's so good to be with you all this evening. Would you turn to Jeremiah chapter 29? Jeremiah, roundabout in the middle of your Bible, Jeremiah chapter 29. And just for those of you who've been around church or been to a college or high school graduation, yes, I am going to read Jeremiah 29, 11. Okay, three people know what I'm talking about. We're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 29 here in just a moment. But I want to ask you a question as we begin our time this evening. And it's a serious question. Do you remember where you were on 9-11-2001? Yes? I remember that it was a Tuesday. I remember I was in high school. I was at a dentist appointment. They had a TV on in the morning. So when I went back to campus, I thought that I would be telling others of this news, but they had turned the TVs on in the classrooms as well. And everyone in our school, in our city, in our state, in our country was glued to what was happening. And even though I can't remember exactly what I had for breakfast a month ago, I, like many of you, had so much of that day lodged into my memory. Why? It's because it was shocking. It's because it was traumatic. It's because it affected so many people. If we went back a generation and said, do you remember where you were on Pearl Harbor or the day that Kennedy was shot? These are these seminal, traumatic, and shocking moments that kind of galvanize and traumatize a whole group of people. Ancient Israel had a 9-11, and it was called the Exile of Babylon. Now, unfortunately, the prophets had been warning them that this was going to come. The more they turned from God and his way, the more they left themselves open to all the enemy empires that would come and sweep them away. Because they would be rejecting God's way and God's peace and God's call to be distinct and save the nations. They said, you've got to watch your back because you'll wind up like every other empire. And it happened. It happened not in one morning, but it happened in a series of attacks and rebellions over a period of about 10 years. Jeremiah is going to write a letter after the first wave of their 9-11, the exile, in around 597 B.C. When we did our series in Daniel, you might remember at the very beginning of that series, at the beginning of that story, that King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, he came and he laid siege on Jerusalem. He came knocking on the door and he just said, hey, don't try to rebel, don't try to threaten me, or bad things are going to happen to you. And just so they would remember, he took a gaggle of the best and brightest, he took some of their priests, he took some of their royal officials, and he also took some of their stuff. But it wasn't just some souvenirs. They were the religious items that carried with them so much of this symbolic nature 
of God's blessing and presence. And it was as if when they took that stuff, that they took all of their hope away. And so this was the first wave that would finally be completed in 586 B.C. when they finished the job and wiped out the whole temple, which was the place where they believed heaven and earth met. Now wiped off the map, and all of them get carted off, those who survived, to go and live in a hard place in a violent world. So whether it's 596, 597, or 2001 A.D., The question we're left with when the violence and darkness of the world comes knocking on our doorstep is this. How do we live in a violent world? And maybe for you it's how do I live in a violent and chaotic relationship? How do I live in a violent and chaotic and divided neighborhood In this country. And tonight we're going to see Jeremiah helping us clear the way into what it looks like to live as people of peace and hope in a dark and violent world. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 29. This is a letter that's going to accompany a group of people that are headed from their home leaving behind the pile of rubble and ash and fire to go to a hard place in a violent time. This is fascinating to me. Let's start in verse 1. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, prophets, and all the other people that Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Then he gives a little parenthesis to give you a historical note. This was after King Jehoiakim and the queen mother, the court officials and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elisah, son of Shaphan, and to Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Pause. If I pronounce all those right, I deserve a raise. Just saying. (laughs) Missed one, says Pastor Bud. Good to have you back. You might want to make notes since I just hit the emergency break on our scripture reading. 2 Chronicles 36 gives a historical account of this. And I just want you to know why these names are important. Because this is not some abstract Sunday school theology lesson for ancient Israel. This is real life, as real as it was on CNN in 2001, or as any of these shootings and the things that continue to plague us, this is real life for these people. So here's the message of hope Jeremiah gives. You with me? Verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses. And settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace 
and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. That's the second time the Lord says he did it, not Nebuchadnezzar. Fascinating. Maybe he's got a plan for them. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Verse 8. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. Now pause there. Who's encouraging these prophets to have these dreams? It's the people that want to hear some good news. Perhaps not what Jeremiah is saying. So they're saying, tell me more, tell me more. Tell me that we're going to come back soon and tell me that we can break some skulls. Are you with me? This is fascinating. But Jeremiah says in verse 9, they are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. So this is what the Lord says. Not seven minutes, when 70 years are completed for Babylon. I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say, thanks be to God. Jeremiah offers God's people two things. A mission of peace for a hard people. And a vision of hope in a hard place. Here's the trouble with peace. We think peace is elusive because we face too much storms, too much oppression, too much struggle, too much suffering. And here's the thing about storms. They really reveal what you really believe about God. They really reveal your character. When the storm hits, that's not the time to say, I better get right with God and get right on my character. No, when the storm hits, you better hold on and hope that what you believe is really embodied into you and that you really do have the faith and trust that God will get you through it. And so what Jeremiah says to these people is, hey, the storm has hit, but God is not done with us. And when they were waiting for everybody to say, okay, it's time to fight back and hit him, he says, no, build houses, plant gardens, get married, and then your kids are going to get married. And then what you're going to do is you're going to pray for these people, and you're going to seek the peace for this city. And they said, wait, what? 
And just so you're clear, he says, yes, this is what I said, because I know that my plans for you are for your good, even though you believe in this moment that the storm hit and I'm not good, even though that you believe in this moment that it's the end of my story. He says, no, I have a hope and a future for you. So Jeremiah says, no, God is not dead. God is not gone. He is with you. He's carrying you to Babylon because you're not done. You still have a mission. Because God's hope for Israel was to be good news and people of peace and holiness and love to people like Babylon. And God used this storm to get them into these people in this town so that they could be good news and bring good news of God's peace and hope in a hard place for a hard people. This is why I think this is so important as we close out this series on our new core practices we're looking at this year. Our fifth core practice is to bring peace. And just to show you where we've been, and just to show you a fun surprise, and I'm so glad that Aaron Stone is here tonight, because Aaron set to working these core practices into some icons that look a lot like our cross for the Neighborhood Church logo, which he also did. And so y'all be ready, because I've told him, we have got to put these bad boys on a shirt. So before, because we love church shirts in this church. So before we get into the fifth core practice, and as we close this series, let me tell you and remind you where we've been by showing you these awesome little icons you're going to be seeing more of on our website and on a t-shirt near you, Lord willing. You ready? Our first week, we looked at our first core practice, which was to follow Jesus. Everything starts and ends with Jesus in this church. And to be a Christian is to follow Jesus. To be a Christian is to be entered into this relationship of loving God and loving neighbor as ourselves, which means our second core practice after follow Jesus is to love neighbor. Isn't that cool? It's not quite our cross house, it's a different house, but it reminds us that we need to love those in our actual spaces of neighborhood and relationship because our faith is expressed fully when it's expressed in love of other. Our third core practice we're going to look at, or we looked at, excuse me, was to grow disciples. And I love that illustration there because it's evocative of something organic, something messy that takes time. And this is what discipleship is about, being with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, how to live like Jesus. And it reminds me of the vine in John 15 where he says, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. So we are all disciples connected to Jesus, and we're also called to go and plant more seeds and to help cultivate more disciples through this growth process of learning to be with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, how to live like Jesus. Last week, we looked at our fourth core practice, which is create space. I love that because it's as if that circle in there is just pushing out the, the space and the noise, and that's what we're after. We commit to create space for transformational relationships to grow, relationships with God and relationships with others. We commit to create space. And then finally, we're back here at bring peace. I love that one, to bring peace. 
I love those icons. Thanks again, Aaron. He's got a really cool picture of all five of them lined out with our uh, church name there. So keep an eye out for those and give him uh, a nice hearty high five and expression of gratitude. So back to core practice number five, our last core practice. We are doing all of these to bring some focus and intentionality of our life and practice together. And here's what we mean by bringing peace. We commit to partner with God in his mission to bring his shalom, which is holistic peace and well-being, to our neighborhood. The first word I want you to look at there or circle if you're writing notes is to bring peace. You know, we oscillated between saying make peace or bringing peace, and we settled on bringing peace because what we want to be is the messengers of the peace that is ours in Jesus Christ, and the peace that comes with God and His mission. So that's why the second thing I want to draw your attention to is that we're partnering with God in His mission because He wants to reconcile all the hard people, and He wants to renew all the violence, and He wants to wipe away all the tears. It's His mission But he invites us to participate and to be the hands and feet. So we need to partner with God in his mission to what? And the third thing I want to highlight is to bring his shalom, which is a Hebrew word that means wholeness, welfare, and well-being. There's connotations of prosperity there. So when you look at this text in this letter that we just read in Jeremiah 29... That word shalom pops up three different times. Plans to prosper you. Seek the shalom and flourishing of this nation that just wiped you out. How on earth are we supposed to bring that kind of shalom? I'm sure that Israel was thinking, here, shalom God's holistic welfare and well-being seek shalom for them because here's the problem it is so countercultural to respond to violence and hatred with peace is it not which is why we need to partner with God and his son Jesus who's the prince of peace Jesus said in the beatitudes blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. Are you all familiar with the Beatitudes? You remember those? This one is so fascinating because the children of God distinction gets attached to the peacemakers. And I think that Jesus knows what he's doing because when we are making and bringing peace, it's like father like son. We're participating in God's heart and God's mission for all of those that are mired in chaos and darkness. Jesus offers a better way. We have not just core practices in our church, but we have core convictions. Y'all remember our core convictions? They're the Anabaptist core convictions. There's seven of them. They're on our website. And these are not a doctrinal statement so much as they are a way of kind of expressing our way of thinking. So when I'm up here preaching about things, you can probably say it falls under the category of these seven things. It just kind of gives us an idea of kind of the air you're breathing and the water you're swimming in. That core conviction number seven, we put a headline on it that says, we are called to be peacemakers. And this is what the Anabaptist Network says. Peace is at the heart of the gospel. 
As followers of Jesus in a divided and violent world, we are committed to finding nonviolent alternatives and to learning how to make peace between individuals within and among churches, in society, and between nations. There is an active way of bringing peace. Amy and I just finished a marriage retreat with another group of people, and we were talking about some of these communication styles that we tend to find ourselves in, and we kind of borrowed on this uh, quadrants that we looked at in our own marriage retreat. Do y'all remember the, those of you who went, the uh, hangout, the checkout, the call out, and then the call up? What we're meaning is there are some certain patterns that we develop in our communication styles, and one of the patterns that I find my own self in is the hangout quadrant. And what I mean by that is when trouble comes or when conflict arises, I want to just hang out and pretend like everything's all good, man. Can we just go back to five minutes ago when everything was hunky-dory and peaceful? But the problem is, is that it's a shadow peace. It's not real peace because even though things appear to be hunky-dory, there is not really reconciliation there. I just don't want conflict. I don't necessarily want reconciliation. So the movement here is that we follow Jesus' example of bringing peace where there was chaos, bringing reconciliation and forgiveness where there was injury. And so there's this active way where we've got to partner with God and follow in line with this message of good news of peace that we find in Isaiah 52.7. We see how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. That's that word gospel, the origin of that word gospel, who proclaim what? Peace, that's shalom. Who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, which is that city that's going to get wrecked, your God reigns. Here's the thing about peace. Peace is possible where there is chaos, but it's got to be this movement toward others where there are bridges and divisions and violence. One more word about shalom. What good is bringing a message that Jesus is the bread of life when the person we're speaking to can't hear us on account of their growling tummies? What good is it to say that Jesus is the living water when there are people dying of thirst and lack of clean water? Amy was just telling me that Cape Town, where we visited last year, is two weeks away from running out of water. And so the problem is when we go out as a church and we announce good news that God reigns and just declare it, but we don't match it with this demonstration of what it looks like when God reigns, we're short-selling the message that God has entrusted to us. So in these spaces of our clothes closet, in these spaces when we go and meet with people who are different from us, building bridges across cultures and socioeconomic lines, what we are doing is saying this is what it looks like when God's in charge. Out there the world is fractured and divided, but we are committed to looking beyond our divisions and trying to build a bridge. That's what it looks like because shalom is not a shadow piece and shalom is not just words. Shalom is the marriage of words and actions. It is holistic and it's what it looks like when God is in charge. 
One of my friends lived in Argentina for many decades. He was a soccer player. He was a coach. He was a missionary. And what he saw was a need. And what he saw was violence. Because when he went to these soccer games in Argentina, the two teams would have gangs associated with them. And so what would happen is, as games go, except for soccer and sometimes there's a draw, which is one of the reasons that soccer kind of stinks, no offense, but most often there is a winner and there is a loser. Well, you know how these Philadelphia Eagles fans are going to feel when they lose the Super Bowl. They're going to be angry. They're going to be storming around, breaking stuff, going nuts. Well, in Argentina, when you have angry fans who are in gangs, when they flood out of the stadium, boozed up and ticked off, violence erupted and people would be murdered in the street because their soccer team lost. And our friend, his name is David, started a movement called No Mas Violencia. And I believe I've talked about it a time or two from the stage, but I'm going to again. No Mas Violencia, no more violence. And what he did was he began to cultivate all these other people who says, I want to bring some kind of message of peace to transform my neighborhood and to transform this violence. And so he brought along all these young people to come together. And he said, look, what are we going to do? And so they just started by putting on these t-shirts, holding hands, and forming a human barricade as the fans led out of the stadium. So in section one, team A is coming out, and in section two, team B is coming out. And right in that space between chaos and God's kingdom, they're this human shield announcing good news with their peaceful presence. And he tells incredible stories of people who would get so mad at these peace bringers that they would actually go home and get more weapons to come back and take care of them. And he says, but what were all those people wearing the white shirts? He goes, what are you talking about, man? All our shirts are black. And he believes that there were other messengers protecting them and providing for them because things get crazy in Latin America, y'all. He went about this movement and it spread into the schools But the sending organization of that mission said, you're failing because you're not planning a church. He says, but look, I'm starting this peace movement. And peace is at the heart of the gospel. And they said, no, you got to plan a church. you got to come home. And he went home defeated. And I'm going to put a pause button and finish his story in a minute. But the point I want to make to you is those young people wanted to bring peace. And he says, here's the thing. You can't give what you don't have. So within that space, he had a bunch of people that wanted to make a difference, but they didn't know Jesus. So they'd go into this peace training, and he says, before we go and have peace out there, we've got to have peace in here. And I think where we need to begin is to see this kind of holistic flourishing. We've got to stay connected to God's message. It's got to start and originate with him. If you want to see peace in those relationships, it starts by praying for peace within your own heart that transcends all understanding. But the problem is, we have every other voice competing for our attention. This letter got sent by Jeremiah to these exiles, but he wasn't the only one filling the void. Y'all remember after Katrina or 9-11 or these other spaces that we're talking about, no shortage of religious leaders wanted to get on CNN and Fox News and fill the void and tell you why this happened. 
Well, there's a man named Hananiah that got on ancient Israel, CNN, and he was speaking to these people just a chapter before in Jeremiah 28, it's recorded. He's speaking on behalf of God. He says, I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back to the place all the articles of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, removed from here and took to Babylon. You remember we were talking about that? You also remember that Jeremiah said, hey, I didn't send these people. They don't speak on behalf of me, says the Lord. Well, he keeps going. I'll also bring back the king and all the other exiles. I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Here is where every Israelite says, yes, that's what we want to hear. Let's go break this dude down. Let's go. But here's the problem. This kind of rallying cry that the culture wants to use to respond to violence brings forth things like this. Listen to this song. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you've done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Where would we find such a violent song like that? In Psalm 137 in our Bible. And you say, wait a minute. What do we do with that? I'll tell you what we do with that. We say, yes, this Bible is true and inspired. And it's written by people who had real emotions in real history, who really recorded the things of their heart. But here's the thing you've got to remember about the Bible. Inclusion in Scripture does not always mean a prescription for our lives. We have a record of a people who would hear these kinds of prophecies and want to go and dash babies' heads on rocks out of vengeance and violence. And the songwriter says, blessed and happy are those. But we have to read everything in light of the teaching and example of Jesus who said, happy and blessed are the what? Peacemakers, not infant killers. And the reason why it is so vital that we be a people of peace in a violent and hostile world, relationally and physically, is because it is the way of Jesus that leads to life and reconciliation and forgiveness, not more violence and more darkness and more hell on earth. And this is why Jeremiah's guidance was so countercultural and difficult for Israel to stomach. Because he said, don't go and kill them. He says what? Build homes, plant gardens, eat produce, get married, and then have children. And then, by the way, let those children get married and have children. And then populate Babylon. Infiltrate this violent world with what? A peaceful people. He says, live well where you are for as long as you're there. And it ain't going to be two years. You're going to be there for about 70. It's going to be a generation. He continues on. Reminding them of this. Because it is so countercultural. And it takes time. And we don't want to put in the time to make a real difference. I love what Leroy Barber wrote in the book Embrace that we read last year. 
He says, I believe that by the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead, we can expect to achieve the welfare, peace, and justice that He intended for our cities, nation, and world. Shalom is possible. But look at this. But achieving shalom is the very difficult work that must be rooted in relationships. I've had a privilege to do some music down at Our Calling, the homeless shelter we partner with. And they've been walking through the Gospel of John. They have a church service for homeless folks on Wednesday mornings. And Wayne Walker, who is the executive director and pastor at Our Calling, he preached on John chapter 5 not long ago. And it was a story where Jesus asked someone, do you want to get well? And what Wayne did in that space, using the words and message of Jesus, was not just call people out for the ways in which their addictions and hurts and hang-ups and brokenness is killing them. He called them up and said, you know what, today, if you want to sign up for housing, I will get you on the list for Dallas housing. Today, if you want help and steps to get off drugs and to find a community who will walk with you through this and help you get sober, we will sign you up. Today, if you want a shower and clothes and food and coffee, take a number, it's right here for you. Today, if you want to be discipled and learn the way of Jesus, even though you live in a tent on the other side of this building, you can sign up and do this. And he put it on them and said, but you've got to want to be well, so get up here and let us help you. And I was sitting there blown away, and I had two thoughts. Number one is, I could never preach in this space. Because everything I said would sound some kind of nice and and pretty, and God may use it. But the reason why I thought of this second thing is because Wayne needs to say that, because Wayne has known these people by name for 15 years. And when he says, you're going to move that tent from there to go over there when the police come, they're going to listen because he's been there every day for 15 years. And it made me think of something that Dr. John Perkins, who's done a lot of community development in rural and impoverished areas, he said, don't even think about moving to a place unless you can envision yourself for 15 years. Because whether you're Wayne Walker in our calling downtown or you're Lou Stone in Wiley, Texas. God has you in your place for your time so you can give time and a peaceful presence in order that someday, some way, you may see a kingdom difference. But the problem with building houses and getting married and having kids and planting gardens is it takes time that we don't A, think we have, or B, want to give. And if our church is going to be successful... It's not going to be by the metrics of America that says we got a bunch of people and we got a bunch of lights and we got a bunch of this, that, or the other. For our church to be quote unquote successful is to be faithful to Jesus in his way of bringing a holistic peace and to be present and to put in the time that it takes to give real, authentic relationships to people who are desperate and in chaos and darkness to bring peace to their hearts in the name of Jesus. And I am so sick of hearing, our nation is more divided than ever. Our nation is more divided than ever. I believe there's probably some truth to that. But here's why I'm sick of hearing it. 
Because as God's people who are blessed as peacemakers and children of God, get up and follow Jesus on social media and face-to-face and be an instrument of peace right here, right now. Be the change that you want to see because if you're like me, I am so tired of hearing, yes, this is where we are. I want a Jeremiah to say, here's what's next. Build homes, plant gardens, and here's how you do it. you got to start with prayer. How do we bring peace? It starts, what he says in verse 7, pray for our neighbors and neighborhood. Because here's the thing about a divided nation. I ain't saying don't have some fake peace where we all just need to agree on everything and look the same and vote the same and act the same. That's baloney. What I'm asking you to change is not your opinions and views. I'm asking you to change your posture toward the people you disagree with. And how do we do that? You can't go and change them, but you can allow God to change your view of them. You can allow God to sit with you in a space of prayer and to see them in their despair and darkness and all those things we were praying about earlier in our prayer time. And you can change your posture toward them. And then maybe that will lead you to take a step toward them, and that's the second item, you got to listen to others. You know, one of the things about people who always want to call out and call out and call out is they're talking so much, they never give a chance to listen to the other person's perspective. And I think so much of our prejudice and bigotry is simply rooted in a fear and a lack of understanding of where they came from and who they are. And that's when you start to listen, and then you say, well, I'm going to third thing, give my time. And then you know what? My time and my presence, that's going to expose me to a lot more needs. So then you're going to do this fourth thing and you're going to invest our resources. Isn't this what Jeremiah is telling these people? Plant gardens, eat produce, give and seek the prosperity. Because when this country, this nation, this city, when it begins to flourish, you're going to rise with the tide as well. So when you invest your resources, what are you doing? That fifth thing, you're meeting needs in Jesus' name. That's the holistic piece of it. And when you're meeting needs, you begin to see that you're forming relationships, and you begin to, the sixth thing, bridge divides. And then ultimately, on number seven, when they're not doing what you want, and they're not saying what you want, because you said, well, I did all this other stuff, and I've invested all this time, reserve your judgments. Reserve your judgments. And know that we are all in process, we're all on a journey, and remember this final piece. For a kingdom shalom, it takes time plus a peaceful presence. And this is the thing that I really want you to hang with me on, church, because I know that we've been the neighborhood church for over a year, and we don't see just a whole lot of people that live in this geographic neighborhood. I'm just going to call it. It's not a qualitative statement. That's just a fact. It doesn't mean it's good or bad so much as it just means I'm going to name it. I'm going to ask you to join me in praying and investing time at The Rock and investing time where you live in your neighborhood because it's okay that you don't live across the street. But you are where you are. So would you stay there? And be a person of peace, bridging divides, praying, listening, and all those things we just talked about. Because if you give it time, I believe we will see a kingdom difference. And I'll close with this. 
I told you I would hit the pause button and return to my buddy David's story. That sending agency brought him back home and he was dejected and he was frustrated because he said, surely this was a movement of God and I thought I was on the right side of it. And so he came back up to North Texas and he settled in here and he planted gardens and he built a house and he had kids and his kids had kids. But you know what happened in Argentina while he was gone? More and more people were bringing peace at soccer games. And then some teachers came and they said, there's so much violence in our schools. So they drafted this curriculum and they went into the Argentine schools and they began to go through this curriculum of how to resolve conflict and to have peace and love yourself before you can love another. And then another school did it and another school did it. And then after several years and a lot of time and the peaceful presence after half times of their biggest games and in all of these youth clubs and to this end of the country and to that end of the country, all of a sudden people took notice in the quote unquote Babylon, the Argentine secular government, and they said there's something to this, and because we seem to be prospering, guess what? This organization, Nomas Violencia, prospered, and they wrote a law in Argentina that said every single classroom, K through 12, must go through this curriculum to have peace with God and peace with others. And you know what? A couple months ago, David went down 20 years, invited by the president and the cabinet and the chamber of commerce of, of all of the state, and, or excuse me, the country of Argentina, and they honored and recognized him for the 20th anniversary of No More Violence. And he had built a home up in North Texas. But because he gave it time, it spread out of Argentina and into El Salvador. And it's spread out of there and into Mexico. And you know what? It's finally making its way to America where I think we need a message of no more violence as well. So whether or not we're ever partnering with no more violence, may we be a church that says enough is enough, no more violence, would we commit to be and bring the good news of peace that is available to all those who would put in the time, who would turn to Jesus, who would look to him in his way. And may we be good news because God knows the plans that he has for us. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And don't forget that the mission of peace and the vision of hope was in the darkest time But it's in the darkest time that the light shines brightest. So may we be a light of peace in our neighborhood. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this space to gather together peacefully. We thank you for the protection and provision and safety and health that we take for granted, to be honest. So thank you for your peace among us and in us. And may out of the overflow, would you make us instruments of your peace. And may you bring to us more who need to be at peace with you because we have brought peace on our streets. Pray this in Jesus' name, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Please stay standing as we receive our benediction. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. Go in his peace.